Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, episode 18 with extra nutrients. This week's episode is being recorded from a balloon somewhere over Wuhan. It's cold, but the view is great. From here, I can just about see some journalists throwing large tops over the Institute of Virology. I've been trying to think what I should say about last Tuesday's State of the Union address. And I really can't come up with anything more appropriate than that I hated it. I hated it. I've seen others parse it and evaluate it and make predictions off the back of it. I've seen a great deal of sycophantic praise for Biden. I've seen fact checks and apologies and whatabouts. And that's all fine. But the bottom line is that I hated it. I think it was a disgrace. I find it embarrassing that that is currently our politics. This isn't a partisan thing. I was embarrassed by everyone. I was embarrassed by Biden, who is a nasty, dishonest, demagogic old man, and who, in his own way, is every bit the pathological liar and unreconstructed narcissist that Donald Trump is. I was embarrassed by the Republicans, who could not help themselves but to shout at him. I was embarrassed by the bipartisan celebration of fiscal irresponsibility that we got in the speech's most notable moment. I was embarrassed by the press coverage that followed, which somehow managed to be both hysterical and obsequious in equal measure. I was embarrassed by Congress, which has let this charade go on for too long. And so, after 45 minutes, I turned it off. Now, I was, of course, primed to hate it, because I don't think that the State of the Union should exist in its current form. The Constitution does not mandate this. The Constitution requires that the President, quote, shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union, end quote. It does not require that that be delivered as a speech, let alone a speech in the House of Representatives. And in fact, it has not always been. For 102 years, Between 1801 and 1913, there was no State of the Union speech. Presidents instead sent a letter. Thomas Jefferson, in 1801, abolished the practice of delivering the report vocally. 
And in 1913, it was brought back by, of course, Woodrow Wilson. After Wilson, Calvin Coolidge abolished it again. And it was brought back by, of course, FDR. And since then, with a couple of exceptions that were made for practical and not principled reasons, it's been the big speech we see today. Republicans have made it just as enthusiastically as Democrats in that time. From my perspective, the optics are all wrong. The optics are a physical repudiation of separation of powers. If you put the State of the Union in front of an alien, he would assume that Congress was a subordinate branch and the president was a king. As Thomas Jefferson noted when he declined to deliver the State of the Union as an address, the event is just a bit too redolent of the speech from the throne which is not a good look for a constitutional republic. And again, what's the point? Well, the point is to give the Congress information of the State of the Union. But that's not what happened. This was a campaign speech, just as those made by Republican and Democratic presidents have been for 80 years. Joe Biden didn't share anything that Congress or the public didn't already know. He didn't even make any crucial arguments from his own perspective, from his branch's perspective, on crucial topics. He made a political speech and he cast himself as the great hero of the United States, which he could have done, and he often does do, anywhere else was pointless. Again, it could have been useful, my other objections notwithstanding. If, instead of shouting at everyone, and being shouted at in return, Biden had used it as a didactic exercise, it could have had some value. Take Ukraine, for example. Now, as a matter of fact... I actually largely agree with Biden on Ukraine. But not everyone does. If he'd wanted to, Biden could have used the time to make an extended case to Congress and to the public for why the United States should spend as much money on Ukraine as it is. He could have explained why we're sending tens of billions of dollars He could have explained why the United States is escalating its involvement in the provision of weapons. He could have explained why, as I believe it is, it is in our national interest to take the position that we have. But he didn't. He almost entirely ignored it. The same is true of the Chinese spy balloon. He could have addressed that. He knows all sorts of things the public doesn't, and that Congress doesn't, and some of them he can share. But he didn't do that. Nor did he address our dire fiscal situation. 
He demagogued it. I accept there are many ways in which one could approach fixing the deficits that we're running. There are many ways in which one could approach fixing our entitlements crisis, which is looming whether we like it or not. One might favour tax increases, one might favour spending reductions, one might favour a combination of the two. But at the very least, one has to acknowledge that there is a problem. Joe Biden is the president. He didn't end up there by accident. He wasn't parachuted in one night when he was asleep. He ran for that office. And as the president, it is incumbent upon him, if he's going to talk about entitlements, to recognize the problem. It would have been a public service to have explained the situation. A situation that is not going to go away if it's ignored or demagogued. But he didn't. Instead, he and the Republicans who shouted at him ran dueling campaign events. And a monumentally dishonest one at that. As if the question here is whether or not people like Social Security and Medicare. So I hated it. I hated the whole thing. I hated it per se. I hated it on the merits. I hated the responses. I hated the analysis. I hope, as I've hoped every year since I moved here, under three presidents now, two of them Democrats, one of them a Republican, that this will be the last State of the Union, but of course... It won't. Well, my guest today is Marion Tupi, the editor of humanprogress.org, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and the author of the book Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Marion Tupi, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you very much for having me. All right, so the bottom line, for those who don't know you, is you are an optimist. If you look through humanprogress.org, which I believe you edit, you'll find optimism about the world and about humanity. I had a look this morning, saw some of the headlines that are currently on the site. So here's a, here's a few of them. India sets new wheat production record. Smart walking cane could change how the visually impaired see the world. The world's working poor are getting rapidly richer. Women in Sierra Leone can finally own land, and, and so on. And those, to put it lightly, are not the sort of headlines you see on most news websites or current affairs websites. So I wonder, if before we get into the details, get into your book, if you can give me a basic outline of your worldview and what you're trying to do with humanprogress.org. Uh, how do you see where we are at the moment? Do you think things are getting better or worse? Are the stories that you're running there to balance out the bad? Or do we all need to get some perspective and cheer up? 
Well, sure. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily call myself an optimist, certainly not optimist full stop. I would, if, if worse, worse comes to, to it, I, I would probably call myself a rational optimist. But really, I'm a realist, uh, much more so than a rational optimist, because, you know, the world is a much better place than uh, you get a sense from uh, the newspapers or from the daily news. Now, I understand why... TV reportage or newspapers lead with stories of murder and earthquakes and disasters because we we as species are pre-programmed to prioritize bad news. I get that. If from an evolutionary perspective, you know, uh, pessimists had an upper hand for the last uh, God knows how many millions of years because the world was such a horrible place. But over the last 250 or 300 years, the, the world has just uh, massively improved. But the human brain is still primed to look at the bad news rather than the good news. And there is a lot of good things happening. Uh, there, are, there are 8 billion people in the world today, many of whom are, uh, you know, working on solutions to the current problems. Uh, we have already solved a lot of problems we had in the past, but, you know... There is this massive amount of people who are just trying to make the world a better place, not necessarily for purely altruistic reasons. They want to make money out of it. There is nothing wrong with that. But the fact is that uh, the, the, the world is improving and it is in a much better place than it was 50 years ago, let, let alone 200 years ago. So maybe a solutionist or a rational optimist, but not just a blind optimist who assumes that everything is going to work out. No, but the world is better than it was 50 years ago. Now, that's an important statement, because one of the things that you will often hear from American conservatives, including classical liberals within the American conservative movement, is that things are getting worse. Now, they wouldn't necessarily say things are getting worse than they were 50 years ago. But certainly a good number will say that America is built on these great ideas, but that those ideas are dying out, that America was in a good place but that that good place is slipping away, that we had the approach that made us free and rich, but that we're abandoning it. Do you worry about that? Absolutely. I do worry about that uh, a great deal. Um, you know, I'm concerned about things like uh, free speech. I'm concerned about uh, the equity agenda. I'm concerned about, uh, you know, people who... Uh, have have sort of deserted the workspace. They no longer work. They they sit at home. Um, th there's a lot of things which on which I think the conservative critique uh, has right. What what but what I con what I'm mostly focused on is measurements of standard of living, and I cannot stand the uh, right wing or conservative complaint which they have borrowed from the left willingly or unwillingly or wittingly or unwittingly that that people are poorer uh, we'll talk about a book later, but uh, let me just give you one statistic so what we did uh, we we tried to estimate how much more Americans can now buy for an hour of work um, uh, in in you know, relative to, say, for example, the 1970s. And uh, uh, we looked at uh, appliances or clothing, um, things like that. And uh, for the same amount of work, for example, that you had to work to buy a vacuum cleaner in 1979, you can now get six vacuum cleaners today. 
the same amount of time uh, that you needed to buy a washer in 1979 will get you three washers today. And I'm not going to go into, you know, every one of them. I mean, there are hundreds of examples where things uh, in America have just become much, much cheaper over the last 50 years. And really, the, the only things that are becoming more expensive are the things where the government is most heavily involved. This is the dead hand of government as opposed to the invisible hand. And that's primarily has to do with uh, healthcare and education in this country. Whatever the government decides is a human right. It just becomes unaffordably expensive. But things where the government stays out of the way tend to become much cheaper. And that actually includes even things that people don't generally think have gotten cheaper, such as, for example, housing. Relative to income, housing is cheaper now than it was 30 or 50 years ago, uh, once you adjust for houses getting bigger and uh, the interest rate, which until recently was lower. So my, my point, I guess, is that on both left and right, you have this growing culture of victimhood, whereby both left and right try to get people to the polls by telling them your life is crap. And uh, it really isn't once you look at the numbers as we do in superabundance. And the problem with that is twofold. One is that um, one is that the, the, the right of the political spectrum is beginning to abandon the system which has allowed Americans to become so rich. And Americans are rich, not just by historical standards, but also compared our standard of living to, say, people in Western Europe, we really are very, very rich. Um, and so this abandonment of free trade, free market capitalism, competitive market is deeply worrying. And finally, if people believe that things are uh, going down the toilet, then w what's the point of of preserving this liberal democracy and uh, free market capitalism, right? And, and those are the institutions upon which this country was built. So I'm very much in the mode of mind of Reagan Republican uh, approach to things rather than the MAGA Republican approach to things. Yeah, so I, before we move on to the book, I wonder if you have any insight into why humans do this in the longer term. Clearly, as you said, there is a political benefit to saying things are worse. Now, you can see that telling people that things were better in 1979 than they are now could carry with it a partisan or ideological benefit. But I've started to see people on left and right making much broader claims that have no obvious short-term political benefit. And one of those claims is that people were better off in the medieval period than they are now, that they had more leisure time, they had bigger homes, they were healthier. And this seems to me completely and self-evidently crazy. But I wonder why we do it. Is it, is it religious? Is, it, is there something deep in the human soul that wants to be a victim? I mean, what, where does that come from? Well, that's a great question. Um, and uh, you mentioned the word religion, and I think that plays into it. And it's a specific kind of religion. It is the green religion. So the way I read the situation is that basically we are becoming a much more secular society, uh, which is fine by me. I'm an atheist. Uh, but um, all of us uh, have that God-shaped 
whole in our hearts, uh, which doesn't necessarily have to have religious connotations. We want to believe in, in, in something. We want to have a meaning in our lives. And I think that the green religion has replaced very much uh, the sources of uh, traditional religious beliefs. And the way that this plays into what you were talking about, these crazy tweets about the people in the medieval time having a better time, is, is precisely that, is that it's somehow... If, if we can only return to nature, if we can abandon the trappings of what I would call modernity, modernity starting after 1750, you know, industrial cities, urbanization, cars, trains, planes, uh, mortgages, things like that. If we could just return back to living of this sort of bucolic land or or an interpretation a, a vision of of the bucolic land of the romantics i mean th- this really starts with 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 the romantics and i sort of see the the new green religion as a as an iteration of, of of romanticism it's a backlash against civilization it's a backlash against modernity and and i think that what those people on twitter are doing they're trying to undermine essentially the the legitimacy of the modernist project they are saying that beginning with the industrial revolution the the world has just become a horrible place it's polluted we are stressed we are anxious if we could only return to land and be farmers and growing our own land you know everything would be fine and that is of course completely crazy it comes from people who have never milked a cow People who can't even, you know, change the light bulb, suddenly you ask them to tend to the land and, and produce food. They don't know how to how to grow, etc. It, it, it's, a, it's a crazy idea. And of course, everybody would be much poorer. And, and here is another important connection to the green religion, which is that there is a new philosophy spreading. Believe it or not, there is even newer one than, than, than postmodernism and CRT, and that's the ideology of degrowth. Right now, it's still very much part of the academic sphere. It's It's been contained at universities, but you never know. Within five or ten years, it may spill out of universities, and suddenly everybody will be talking about de- degrowth as a as a realistic option for humanity. And the, the, the basic notion behind degrowth is that we are all going to do with less. So the point of modernity, the point of capitalism, is that everybody should have more options, uh, more, uh, more food, better, bigger houses, whatever. And the degrowth is basically about the opposite, that we should, uh, we should really cut our consumption uh, to, to a point where basically we are all much poorer. Um, so, so those are all connections to, 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 to the same idea, which is anti-modernist backlash, which starts in, with the romantics in the 19th century. Oh, well, that is a perfect segue then into your book. You co-wrote it last year. It's called Superabundance. And in this book, you and your co-author argue, in effect, that having more people in the world is better in almost every way. Can you run me through why? Yes, well, um, the, 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 the thing is, I mean, just just the most basic statistic that you can look at, 1 billion people in the world in 1800, 8 billion people in the world in 2022, and yet our standards of living have been much have grown much higher so clearly having more people in the world uh, is is better in terms of rising standard of living now some people might poo poo rising standard of living but but those are mostly you know intellectuals academics making quarter of a million dollars a year but for most people who live on 50,000 or 60,000 dollars a year standards of living matter and um, and so 
in our model, everything starts with population. The bigger population you have, the more ideas you have you can create. Um, technological progress, uh, higher standards of living are based on basically having new ideas. But the key is that not everybody is an inventor or an innovator. Only a small fraction of humanity can, you know, is is driven toward inventing and innovating. So the absolute number of people who will be inventors and innovators uh, in a population of uh, 300 million, as there was a population of the world, during the time of Christ or Caesar Augustus, is going to be much smaller than a than a than a fra- than the absolute number of people who can innovate or invent with a population of eight billion. So you have this big population, and as a result of that, the the, the number of people who who in who have new ideas and turn them into inventions and innovations increases. Those inventions and innovations are then turned into uh, machines that create productivity gain, and those productivity gains then result in higher standards of living. So that's essentially the model. And it's also uh, supported by numbers. Uh, essentially, when you have more people, you have higher higher standards of living. But 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 the key uh, aspect of the book also says that having more people is not enough. They also have to be free. So superabundance really equals population times freedom. Right now, the whole world benefits from from inventions and innovations, from the technological progress created in Western countries, where you have the freedom to think, to speak, to write, to share ideas, to associate, and then to implement those ideas in the marketplace where you can profit from them, right? But but uh, but there's very little innovation happening in uh, huge chunks of the world, uh, including Africa, Big, big chunks of Asia and Latin America. If the whole world was free, then of course you would have many more people with the freedom to 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 actualize their their ideas. So really, freedom and population are very important to to our to our model. And finally, I don't think it's coincidental that this tremendous increase in standards of living, what 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 Deidre McCloskey calls the great enrichment, also happens after the middle of the 18th century when, when political liberalism, in the European sense, starts spreading around the world, first in Western Europe, then in North America, and then in other parts of the world. So as more people have, uh, as more people obtain their basic dignity after the middle of the 18th century, as more people can count on their government to protect their basic human rights and are protected from the predation by the government. And also, as we have more people in the world uh, just being born, you have this tremendous increase in prosperity. That's basically the, the, the main motive of the book. All right. So there's two parts to this, as you said. The first part is a repudiation of sorts of the Malthusian claim that if you have lots of people, if you have a growing number of people, that inexorably, mathematically, you will get a disaster. The second is that having more people is not only not a problem, but is actually good, and that it's preferable. But there's a caveat, and that caveat is that merely having lots of people isn't enough in and of itself. It doesn't happen magically. Those people need to be free. How optimistic are you that they will be? That, so that, that that is correct. And, and, and the perfect example of this is China, of course. China has been the most populous country in the world for about 2,000 years. 
but uh, it's been dirt poor until very recently. And it was only after the Chinese government took its boot off the neck uh, of the Chinese people that we have seen this tremendous increase in wealth in China. How optimistic am I? Well, I'm optimistic and I'm pessimistic. Let's start with pessimism. Uh, we are clearly going to reach peak population in about 2060 or 2080, and after that, the world's population is going to be declining. Oh, that, that tell me why. I don't, I don't understand why. Well, right now, the only region in the world where people have more babies than is the replacement level. The replacement level basically means that you need 2.1 children per woman per lifetime in order to keep population stable. And something like 60% of countries around the world right now, uh, birth rates are below replacement level. In South Korea, for example, it's 0.9 instead of 2.1. In Central Europe, where I'm from, it's like 1.3, 1.4 instead of 2.1. So, so those populations are already shrinking, right? Or or if they are not shrinking, they are aging, correct? Right, and and the only part of the world where people still have many more babies than is the replacement level is sub-Saharan Africa. So so that is why we are going to see a population peak and then it starts declining. So 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 that's that's the first problem. Now, decline in population growth could be compensated for by a massive increase in human freedom, meaning um, all of Africa and Latin America and Asia suddenly become liberal democracies, uh, liberal, I always emphasize, I don't mean it in American sense, I mean it in a, in a European sense, uh, liberal democracies where people are free to let their imaginations go, they can come up with new ideas, they can participate in the marketplace, their property rights are protected. And, and if we had this sudden spurt of freedom, then, then you could compensate for population decline. But that's not what's happening. Uh, at Cato, one of our products is the Human Freedom Index, and that's actually been declining. It's, it got a massive hit during the COVID pandemic, but it, it is on a, on a long-term decline, which is, which is obviously problematic, right? Uh, rather than increasing, it is decreasing. Now, so that's the pessimistic part of it. The optimistic uh, part of it is that it, it could well happen uh, that artificial intelligence and supercomputing could help humans uh, who who may be declining in number in free societies that AI and supercomputing could help us to overcome these problems. In other words, I see AI potentially as an enhancement of human mind, as a as an enhancement of human intelligence. So if uh, without AI and supercomputing, you can produce X, with AI and supercomputing, you can, you know, produce X plus one or X plus two or whatever. And so it's possible that this, this threat of, of declining freedom and population could be compensated for by through technological evolution, but we are not there yet. What do you think of the critiques that are leveled by some on the left and some on the right, including some of my colleagues at National Review, that cast the sort of liberty and classical liberalism that you're discussing as being great for some people and a real problem for others. And they'll argue, for example, that free trade is in the aggregate defensible, but that it destroys certain towns and regions and marginalized communities and that it's not worth it. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I mean, if I can channel here uh, the Canadian psychologist um, Jordan Peterson, that there there is such a thing as, as too much compassion, or if you will, too much safety 
look, if you don't want anything bad to happen to you in your daily life, then you might as well not just get up from bed and, and just stay there and sleep there all day long because the moment you walk out of the door, uh, you know, you may be hit by a car or, or something like that. So so just, just living implies certain amount of risk. And the same goes for the economy in general. If we didn't want any change, if we didn't want uh, uh, any, any, any risk, the creative destruction that uh, that uh, Schumpeter talks about, you know, we could uh, we could persist in stagnant uh, standards of living. That's what we had for tens tens of thousands of years. Whatever your standard of living was, was your parents and your grandparents and your children and your grandchildren. Nothing much has changed. The reason why we talk about this hockey stick of human progress, why we talk about the great enrichment is because there is that long shaft that, you know, of the hockey stick that, that, has been um, has been horizontal for a very long time and nothing has changed and uh, and 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 life was miserable so what capitalism promises is on aggregate to increase standards of living but it does contain within it the element of creative destruction the fact that certain old ways of doing things have to die for better things to emerge and to be enjoyed by humanity and so what worries me is that by uh, by emphasizing the safetyism and um, you know that that we have to be compassionate to a fault to our fellow citizens who may fall on hard times is going to sort of freeze us in place um, you know s- solidify us in amber or whatever the whatever the word is that I'm looking for and um, uh, we will be a society where um, like like Western Europe right now, where people can rely on uh, a lot of goodies from the state and a lot of security, but we will also be stagnant in place. There is a reason why in America we have so much more innovation than in Western Europe is precisely because uh, we allow for this creative destruction to take place and Europeans uh, do so to a much less extent. Is there anything in particular we should be doing in the United States to maximize our progress. We already have a growing population. Some would like it to be growing less fast. Some would like it to be growing more fast, but it is still growing partly through immigration. Are there laws we should repeal or habits we should break or approaches we should take? Sure. Um, well, yes. So Native American women have 1.7 children instead of 2.1. But the reason why American population is still growing is because of immigration. You, you're quite right on that point. Um, look, I'm sort of of the theory that um, um, in in any advanced country, uh, the, the, the sort of natural progress of things is for the bureaucracy to grow and for dynamism of society to decline. America may not have started with a natural aristocracy, but we do have an aristocracy of thought of, of, of sort living here in Washington D.C., and that's called the bureaucratic state, uh, where uh, you know people are pampered, uh, people are giving a lot of money in order to cause trouble for the rest of America, and are churning out more and more laws and regulations, which are making dynamism uh, more difficult to accomplish in the economy, and which are making the ordinary lives or, or lives of ordinary Americans much more difficult. And so what really worries me is that what's going to finish this country off is is going to be a a 
just a continued rise of, of bureaucracy and uh, continued expansion of the bureaucratic class and regulations. And when I look at our competition with China or India or any other place in the world, I don't look at the Chinese and the Indians as being at fault here. What I look at is Washington and how we are shooting ourselves in the foot by by constantly making more and more difficult in this country to to innovate and but also to move around uh, and to and to bring people back into the workplace our our social welfare state uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say I know this will annoy some of uh, national review readers but um, is, is, is excessive. Uh, there's a new book um, by uh, Phil Graham and a couple of other authors called The Myth of American Inequality. And what they found was that if you are a person in the, in the lowest quintile uh, of society and you're on welfare, you can bring, in, uh, bring, bring home $50,000 a year in, uh, in government subsidies once they're all added together. If you are in the second quintile of the American workforce, where you actually have to work for a living, you can hope to make about $55,000. So, so that means that by working, you are improving your standard of living by $5,000, but you have to put in eight hours of work. Whereas if you are willing to sacrifice $5,000, you don't have to work at all. So it is very few people understand this, but our social welfare net is bigger than that of Canada. We do actually have a massive social welfare state, which is discouraging people from working, which is why our workforce participation rate is only 62%. Do you know what it is in Switzerland? 85% of people between 15 and 64 work. In our country, it's only 62. So we've got millions of people who are discouraged from working because of the social welfare state. And those people who work have to constantly put up with more and more laws and regulations which make our lives more difficult. These are the two areas that I would look at. And I know that it makes me sound like I'm, I'm cold-hearted and I don't care. But Really, what we are talking about is either preserving the safety and compassionately taking care of our people today, but at the price of long-term prosperity of this country and uh, the future of, of future generations. All right. Well, let, let's finish by talking about free speech. You mentioned you were worried about free speech. And I think there's two elements to this. There's the question of free speech per se. We protect free speech in America per se, and we should. We want people to be able to speak, and it is a problem in and of itself when the government prevents them from doing so. But there's also an economic element. If you create conformity and you silence or marginalize or discourage people who are unusual or weird even, you begin to damage economic growth because the inventors that you've just described perhaps do something else or, or shut up. Do you think we grasp this as a country? Because I see this real paradox. On the one hand, we love talking about the dropouts and the eccentrics. You remember that Apple commercial, here's to the crazy ones, and they showed all of these people who didn't quite fit. And we said, aren't they great? But at the same time, we are, in my view, engendering this uniformity of thought that would have made all of those people a lot less popular and a lot less successful. So do, do you share my view that we are, we are seeing a clamping down, not just on expression, but on innovation and prosperity? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. So I, I sort of think about um, freedom of speech uh, at a micro level and macro level. The macro level is obvious. If people cannot speak freely about things which don't go well in their society, then uh, the society can easily go in the wrong direction. People are basically throwing themselves off the cliff like like lemmings. And, and a perfect example of that would be, of course, my life in Eastern Europe under communism. Because we were not allowed to complain about our standard of living, we were not com- allowed to complain about shortages and whatever, communism probably lasted much longer than it would have if freedom of speech was, was preserved. So entire societies can suffer for decades from uh, faulty ideologies because people are too afraid to speak out against them. Here in this country, of course, the perfect example of that would be the the equity agenda. But on a micro level, we have um, uh, we have the issue with quirky individuals. It's not just freedom of speech, which you rightly identified, but it's also quirky behaviors. So uh, in the book, we talk about Steve Jobs and uh, we talk about Jim Watson. Um, the story of Steve Jobs is well known. He was uh, he was a cruel and, uh, and and a bad boss. He was in fact dismissed from Apple once before he was brought back when the when the company was about to go bankrupt. Now, would Steve Jobs be able to do the things that that? Uh, would he be able to flourish and create this company in today's environment where any intern or um, um, employee can uh, can basically get a person like that fired? Probably not. Jim Watson, a perfect example, uh, he's a guy who co-discovered the DNA in the 1950s. I believe that Jim is still alive. I mean, here's a man who's got some, uh, you know, very... Um, unpopular opinions on a variety of issues, including gender. Would a person like this, uh, you know, I mean, he already got cancelled, but imagine that we had cancelled him before he discovered DNA. So I think that um, we are, we are, this is a problem because another thing which we identify in the book, and this is based on some recent research, is that the the people who are most likely to be inventors and innovators are quirky in in very many ways. They're usually quite antisocial. You see, if you are a social kind of person, you don't need to invent or innovate anything. You you ask Charlie Cook to come and help you to um, you know to do something at your home, or you you rely on the, on the crowd to help you to achieve something to to solve a problem. But if you are an antisocial individual, you are probably going to um, you are much more likely to try to invent a solution to a problem without having to rely on fellow human beings. So. Much of technical progress or disproportionate amount of technical progress relies on these very quirky individuals. And if we are are going to be canceling them for their views or for their behavior, uh, then we are, of course, shooting ourselves in the foot. And this needs to be, I think, more widely appreciated, uh, that we are creating conformist culture where people are afraid to speak, where we are too too easy to to cancel people. And uh, that's bad. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marion Tupi, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And that's all we've got time for this week. So thank you to Marion Tupi for being my guest. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Thomas Jefferson for abolishing the State of the Union. And boo to Woodrow Wilson for bringing it back. And congratulations to whichever presidential candidate promises to get rid of it forever 
I will be a fan of his for the rest of his life. See you next week. <laughs>